0: This season of Influencing Entrepreneurs is brought to you by the Entrepreneurs' Organization of Charlotte. EO Charlotte is part of the world's premier network of successful entrepreneurs, embracing the unique qualities of the entrepreneur. Desire to build, extreme achievement, quest for new experiences. EO opens a new world for peers to learn from and inspire each other, leading tremendous business successes and a richer personal life. EO Charlotte, where entrepreneurs belong. Coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs.
1: So that was probably a moment that I I didn't think was going to happen, but we got the team together, I started talking, I just started sobbing, which I was not expecting myself to do. I didn't realize how I'd felt about those topics and those things, Um, but you could tell afterwards People respected me more than I, not that they didn't before, but you could tell there was this air of like, he's human and he's approachable and he's trying to wrestle these things that the, the rest of the world is trying to wrestle as well.
2: After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting with multiple companies, I realized that when business leaders share stories of not only their successes, but their mistakes, it had a huge impact in the classroom. So I thought, why not document those stories? On this episode of Influencing Entrepreneurs, we'll hear from Alex Smirznak, the co-founder of the Charlotte-based startup, 2U Laundry. Since its start in 2016, 2U Laundry has grown to over 120 employees across three locations. I'm Casmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. I gotta be honest, out of uh, a lot of the bios and stuff uh, I- I've gotten doing these over the years, I've never had one that had incriminating evidence to a crime in the, uh, in the material you sent on over. And I got to be honest, I, I, I'd love to hear more about this story if you're willing to share it. So I see a, a text regarding uh, a car crash <laughs> Mm -hmm. So, um, if you're not comfortable, I don't want to push you down that route, at the same time we've all made mistakes growing up and things like that, things that we make those decisions that we think, oh my gosh, it's over, like, I've screwed everything up, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, your experience is just that, or?
1: (laughs) No, that's exactly right, that's where I think I am comfortable you you sharing, it because I think I don't know. We we're, were all in college, we or all at high school kids at one point, and, and our perspective on the world, the decisions we made, is you know, are a lot different than they are now. And the ones that we do have now are shaped by those experiences, the good and the bad. And, right. Um, so yeah, more than happy to share.
2: So, so what is this? Mis- what's this mistake that at, in your teenage years yeah. feels like? I'm done. I'm going to end up. You know on the streets or my dreams are crushed?
1: Yeah, so for me, and thankfully it was never that n- never that bad. I, I'm from Red Wing, Minnesota originally. Um, ended up going to Wake Forest University, which is how I ended up in, in North Carolina. Um, and me and my, my co-founder now actually had always been you know, wanting to, to get into business together, wanted to you know, start something together. Um, and growing up in a small town in Minnesota it was 14,000 people. Um, there's not a ton to do. Um, and so early on, you know, there were people in high school that started drinking and you know, smoking pot and you know all these things. And um, it, in this it was, day and age, in this day and age, yeah, yeah. And so growing up, it was hard to get because we were in such a small town. So right. my, you know, Dan and I were, you know, could we start, you know, just selling some to our friends and you know making making it so that, you know, we easily had access to it. Um, and then I think like anything, it kind of snowballed. And I went to college. He went to college. And then it just started, you know something that we do over the summer just kind of for fun um but then it snowballed and got bigger and dan had a roommate in college that was you know having a guy drive in from colorado with pounds of marijuana in the back of his car um and he would he was at the university of minnesota he's like this guy's making you know twelve thousand dollars a week and i'm like oh this is interesting how do how do we do that (laughs) um and so he started we got the Slick idea of hey, maybe we should send some that your friends getting in Duluth to me at Wake Forest. It's a lot of affluent kids that come from wealthy families. They don't want to go into the town of Winston-Salem, um, and so we thought it would be a good idea to to do that. And <laughs> se- what, was it a good idea? It was not a good idea. <laughs> um, partly because when he he shipped the second order, he you know he wasn't doing the same thing as his friend. But his friend was putting it in folders coffee cans, sealed up, and you know, it was pretty legitimate. Um, and, and Dan put it in a cereal box with no Ziploc bag, or no, no anything, and the students at the post office at the University of Minnesota immediately could smell it, called campus police, campus police ended up going to Dan's house, and he, he did get in trouble for it. Thankfully, everything's been expunged, and you know, he learned from it, we both learned from it. I you know, was less impacted directly from a legal perspective
2: um i i want to ask why you did this but i'll be honest you make it quite clear it worked
1: right it made money right
2: there was a. I mean, we're not going to dwell on this the whole time right, right. But, but, but here's the thing started a business at a young age i mean so there, there's that part that's built in you already mm-hmm. there's got to be a part where it kind of feels uncomfortable like hey this is kind of we're just doing the A small amount of this for our friends, to where that feeling of dread and risk is like, oh no, that's not an issue anymore. We're now making a thousand bucks a week, or whatever that money is. Which, heck, five hundred bucks a week, get it? For teenagers, a lot of money. At what point does that that scale tip to where you're like, oh, I'm not really worried about those pieces right now. I've got a business to run.
1: Yeah, so I got to a point where. You know, on campus at Wake Forest, at least, it got to the point where people I didn't know would come up to me and say, hey, I hear that. And I was like, oh, this isn't. And that's when I decided to eventually quit. But it, it, it did. And that was the point where, you know, and somewhere in between, I guess, when we first started and that point was, you know, your question about when does it get to the point where you're running a business? And I was running it out of a um, it's called Peach. Uh, it was an accounting software. Peachtree. I was using I, Peach Tree to yeah. do the accounting for, for and It was. it's not a ton but it was for me I was a finance major at Wake I wanted to say hey let's actually let's legitimize legitimize this as much as we can and and be smart about it and and run it like a proper business Um, and then eventually had multiple people at Wake working kind of for me on it Um, I was in a fraternity there that made it easier to get access to everyone else Um, and it was when you know a handful of people that I didn't didn't know came up to me and could identify me as the person that could help them find what they wanted. And that's when I said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. We made good money. Uh, Dan was able to get, you know, thankfully out of trouble. Um, right. But learned. now you
2: are that guy. You are the guy that owns a <laughs> successful business that wants to be known in the business community and not, you know, for for the same reasons, but you own 2 you Laundry, you've got a very successful business model. How did this start?
1: Yeah, so the, for, the way that I got into laundry and dry cleaning and business as a business in the first place was at Wake as well. And you're in a um,
2: finance program, so you, you've already used your finance background to start your, your previous <laughs> endeavor. But you're going to use the same knowledge for 2U.
1: Exactly. So I was a, um, a bag runner for the student run business on campus called Wake Wash. And it was a door to door laundry and dry cleaning delivery business on campus that started out as a an entrepreneurship class project. It was professor gave them, I think, $40 and said, the whole semester we're going to go through ideation, to concepting, to building an MVP, to going to market, and at the end of the semester you'll be graded on you know, every step of the way, but most importantly the results and the traction that you, you garnered throughout the semester with that $40. Um, and one group realized, hey, washers and dryers on campus are technically free and included in room and board, let's start telling people we'll pick up their clothes and cleaning it. And at the end of the semester, they had the group with the hot dog stand come up and they're like, we did $200 in in revenue. There was a t-shirt selling company that did 300 and then the wash guys and girl um, came and were like, we did $5,000 in revenue. And the professor was like, you guys should maybe continue to keep doing this. If you did this passively with $40, imagine if you guys actually invested your time. Um, And so I was working for them and fell in love with the business thought it could scale the Duke, chapel hill vanderbilt and they were seniors at the time and i said hey what are you guys going to do with this when you're done i want to i want to buy it and see if we can not you know, make this even bigger so, so you're not even
2: this isn't even your original idea you just see an opportunity that can be replicated over and over again
1: yeah it was, it was just it was such you know it was basically a marketplace model before that was a, like a cool you know uber for x or marketplace for x they were they were really just sitting in the middle creating a platform and supply and demand and um i thought it was brilliant and i think they grew it to thirty thousand in revenue when we bought it um i had three grand saved up nowhere near enough to to pay what they're asking um so you're
2: you're a college student and you're going to buy your first business not even start up your own business you got three grand you're going to buy it and what is their willingness to sell it to you are they they a couple years older than you They're,
1: they're seniors at the time so they're on their way out and that's where it was you know hey we are trying to sell it we've grown it bigger than we ever thought it would be um but we need to make sure that we're compensated for the cash flow that this kicks off and right. but we also understand you're in this weird position as a freshman that you're only gonna get to run this for two to three years and then have to sell it again as well and so we had to get creative on the structure and um again i didn't have they were asking i think for one time's revenue or something so they're asking for around 30 grand i did not have 30 grand right um i had three i convinced two other partners to clear their savings account with me um, and then we were able to get a loan, um, for 15,000 and ended up buying the business. Um, do you, and was, do, you, do, you, do you match their sales price of $30,000? Mm-hmm. So we had, at one point during negotiations almost, you know, backed out and, and did exactly that. And then we realized they have this exclusive agreement with the university where they can be the only student run laundry provided, you know, provider on campus. So you but, were buying rights really? But they didn't renew it. So we were like, can we just go to, so we went, we, we tried the back door and they, they're like, no, look, that's, if you guys try to do anything like that again, this other group's going to get the, the, the company. Um, and the university was loyal to, hey, you guys didn't renew, but let's renew now so you guys can sell it. And um, So they renewed the agreement. Um, <laughs> we ended up buying it. And so we had exclusive rights for the next four years to um, exclusively be the only laundry company on campus.
2: Now, were you able to sell it in the same fashion on your way out?
1: So, yes, on the way out, we ended up selling it for about a 10x return on, on what we bought it for. Um, We had grown it tremendously and the the reason was is, the first thing we realized is 80% of the customers were freshmen coming in. A lot of parents were worried about their son or daughter going out for the first time um, and wanted to support them. And so we went to the university and said, hey, we want to be part of orientation. We want this to be a checkbox option for parents and their their students. So it's get your meal plan, get your parking pass, get your books, here's wake wash, get your laundry service. Even though washers and dryers were included in, in room and board and that, you know, in that first year, three to four x the revenue, um, and then the year after, very similar growth.
2: And I'm assuming you didn't have you had uh, little attrition, like every, I mean, everybody came back year after.
1: Right, you did see a, a drop off from when people started to move off campus, like sophomore to junior year. Um, but yeah, it was fairly sticky. You have this new batch every year, freshman always, you know, comprising of a majority of the customer base, and the margins were phenomenal because it was the subscription model where you know they'd pay a thousand dollars for the whole school year 500 for the semester and then you can pick weekly or bi-weekly and the price would change based on that but college kids aren't like the families we service in charlotte they you know they forget to set the bag out they don't clean their sheets you know but once a semester right. but they should they could be doing it weekly or bi-weekly um, so the margins are much better the margins were yeah. phenomenal it was we had 80 percent gross margins and like 65 percent net. so most i mean the business cash flow in a really good way so you're leaving
2: campus, which means you're leaving your business at that point. Or were you, were you prepared to be the creepy guy that graduates <laughs> but still hangs out and does laundry?
1: So I, at the time was, we'd grown it more than we ever, I think any of us ever thought we would. And I mean, it was kicking off enough cash flow that the three of us were able to pay for, you know, help pay for a lot of school. Um, so it was meaningful. And I, you know, we looked at each other and said, hey, we either go do the investment banking route or marketing route. Which we can always go do or do we keep doing this Um, i really wanted to go see if this would work at Duke, chapel hill and the model for me was going to be create joint ventures with college students because to me it was the most impactful experience of of my life and even those days still consider it that um i was like so is there a way that we could build this kind of like non-profit-esque for-profit business where we could create joint ventures with students that get to buy in to a business run it but really run it on their own and then we'll help them with the sale process and we'll be this independent third party that helps the transition constantly happen um, and so we tried to do that at Duke, Chapel Hill, uh, uh, UNCC, not UNCC, Queens, I we actually got kind of far with, uh, Davidson, and the, the, the roadblock we kept hitting was, hey, we really need this to be completely student-run, no outside involvement, we don't want kids being taken advantage of, or and we're, we we'd keep it 51, 49, 51 the student. Um, it was just a lot of bureaucracy and, you know, kind of red tape we had to jump over, and so ultimately decided, let's, let's sell it. And um, and this was while we were still students that way. So
2: you sold it back to students? We
1: sold it to another group of students after us, yeah. Okay.
2: And uh, your love of laundry continues after you do that. Do you <laughs> go right into the public sector uh, outside of universities with the laundry model, or do you, do you go into the private sector?
1: Yep, so we, we sold it. I thought I was done with laundry and dry cleaning. Um, as a career, decided to do consulting, management consulting at Ernst & Young. Um, and the reason I did that was I thought consulting would look more like entrepreneurship. You're on teams with different people, solving different problems, different clients. So it changed every three to you know, eight months depending on the project that you're on. And so I thought that's that's interesting. You're getting a lot of exposure to completely different things. Um, and you know I love the people that I work with, but the, I think, space that I was specifically on I was consulting for you know, B of A, Wells Fargo, et cetera, here in town. Um, and it was, just super dry and, you know. Do they, do, do they
2: lend themselves to entrepreneurial thinking?
1: Not a ton. And that, and that, that started to get really frustrating for me too. And again, I love the people, very smart people I was surrounded by and that's probably the thing I missed the most at UI. Um, but the work we were doing, the pace at which it was moving was just so slow. I saw so much waste. I remember there was one project that, you know, I was working on this deliverable for two full weeks, you know, talking 80 to 120 hours across the two weeks and i go to talk to my senior manager on the project and they're like oh yeah i forgot to tell you like you know, a week and a half ago i talked to the client and we're, we don't actually need the deliverable anymore like so we just build the client and wasted all this time And it, yeah he's like yeah it's fine billable hours or whatever And i just think like, that idea like mentality in my head was just not what i wanted to continue it has to, to
2: turn apart like your ethics off or your yeah
1: yeah my ethics and just like the value that i was hoping to be providing, it's just like we could have had one conversation and saved. you know, I could have been working on something else. that would have created real value, even though I know the firm is getting paid for this, but, and I'm I'm sure the client, you know, writes some of these things off as whatever as well, but it still just doesn't, I don't know, it didn't feel good. And, um, So that
2: even the way you mentioned it was creating value, you're looking for ways to create value. You're being paid to create value, but also not being allowed to.
1: Right. And I think the last straw for me was. My roommate, um, when I first, first moved here, also worked at EY and, you know, he'd be working 60 to 80 hours a week. And I, my whole life, have been a, alright, how do I game the system kind of person. like, I want the maximum value, but I don't want to work h- harder than I have to, to get the same value. And so right out of the gate, they're like, here's how you get a five. If you get a five, you get a 20% raise every year, and here's the things that we look at. So I just look, you know, break it down. How do I have to do this without having to over? Um, <laughs> right. uh, so I got on the right projects. I networked with the right partners. I got involved in the extracurriculars at EY and recruiting and, and, and you know, really tried to plug every single one. At the end of our first year, I get a five. My roommate who worked, he, he's a smart guy. He worked twice as hard as me from an hour's perspective, got a three and it's just, this is, I don't know, this is a real people's lives that get impacted by this stuff. I got a 20% raise, he got a 10% raise. It's just, it, that was to me was the last. I was like, this isn't fair. I think I want to work in a place where I'm so rewarded. So in that
2: sense, you were successful and that success exposes a system that you said, forget this.
1: It just made me kind of jaded to it. It was just, I want to be in an environment where the hardest working people, the smart, smartest, hardest working people are going to get rewarded for the work that they're doing and the value that they're creating.
2: Now that you're running your your own company,
1: how do you feel
2: about that philosophy with your team and your employees?
1: I, 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 try to, I mean, I try to remember that moment and I try to create people's compensation around exactly that. It's, you're not going to get rewarded for you know, hopefully some weird system we made up. I know it's not random, but the system that we made up that kind of fits the most people because there's so many people working here. I try to tailor to each individual and what is the company's goals and will it reward you for results and hard work to get those results, whether that's in 40 hours or 120 hours, whatever it takes you to get those results. Like, uh, you know, want to en- enable the team to make those decisions on their own. What, what, do you have an example you could share that you're, you, uh, of a policy
2: that you put in that, that, that rewards that?
1: Yeah, so one individual comes to mind, he runs all of Charlotte for 2U. Um, and his compensation there's a, you know, a pretty decent market um, base salary and then a pretty uh, aggressive um, variable comp that's tied to how profitable the city is. Um, so at the end of the day, if he's able to get the clothes cleaned within, you know, the quality that needs to be, you know, as the table stakes, he's going to get to reap the reward of, of doing that. He gets to basically run his own mini business. He runs the Charlotte PL. and um, So we walk through the, you know, the, the p every month. He looks for places that he can cut costs without, you know, diminishing quality. And then areas where he can help support the marketing team and growing the business in, in Charlotte and generate additional revenue, whether it's different streams or, or same core core uh, services that we offer.
2: Does that same system empower him to do the same with his team as well?
1: Um, to a degree, just not not to the same extent. So he'll do you know weekly bonuses or monthly bonuses that he's got a discretionary budget for. Um, that he'll use to try to incentivize his team.
2: But but not to the point, because sometimes those pro, those programs work, and, and mathematically they're great, and they meet those cores, but they stop at a certain level. And sometimes it ends up being at the expense of other team members. Is there a way that you can evaluate their performance against his performance? Or?
1: Um, no, I, think, I, mean, I think you're right. Like eventually, there's, you know, I don't know if it's diminishing returns, but it gets to a point where it's... The individual might not be motivated by those things at all, it's, it's more so, you know, the people are just having a job to begin Some with. So people are there for a paycheck.
2: So you, you you leave the consulting world, do you start to you Laundry and then leave, or do you just say, screw it, I'm out of here? Yes,
1: yeah, so it was kind of a combination of the two, and what really sparked the idea to get back into it was seeing these two different companies on the west coast, uh, was Wash U and Rinse so the names, uh, raised $30 million to go after the $40 billion laundry and dry cleaning industry um with what i thought were the wrong models this was in 2012 or no 2014 um, and you were seeing uber for dog walking uber for groceries uber for you know massages you name it and they were trying to be uber for laundry so they would you know, had a nap they'd come here and pick up all of the shirts off of our back if we wanted them to in 10 minutes um, but my thought was you know, we all have outfits that we can wear tomorrow the day after tomorrow it's really not an impulse Need like ride sharing is you need to you need to get somewhere now you're hungry you want Uber Eats or DoorDash to come bring you food and make sure it's hot. Whereas laundry is this chronic recurring pain point. People build schedules around Sunday's laundry day, Saturday's laundry day. It's this chronic recurring pain point. Um, and so I saw what they were doing. They were getting customers. They were raising money. They were you know on the outside and they looked successful. Um, And I thought, no way the unit economics work on an on-demand point-to-point delivery model for laundry. This has to be UPS or FedEx for laundry, not Uber for laundry. Um, I want to take what I did in college and try to do this on a larger scale and and see what happens. So I told Dan, my co-founder, about it, um, not only because we had the other business in college together, but he was working at startups right out of college doing sales and marketing. I'm more finance and operationally kind of minded, Um, and he helped me build the first website. He quit his job. Broke up with his girlfriend at the time, now wife. Yes. Um, packed the car, moved down to Charlotte, um, and I quit my job at EY in December of 15, and we launched Two You in January of 16.
2: Where would that work? Because everything out, you know, all these app companies are all out West Coast, Austin, or Silicon Valley. Why Charlotte?
1: Part of it was probably like our um, us being naive <laughs> and thinking, hey, you know, hey, we're in Charlotte. Why not here if anywhere? And over time, it became a core part of our thesis of. If this works in a city like Charlotte, why wouldn't this work in Chicago, New York, Boston? Versus, if I go to a New York or a Chicago now, you might get a false positive, where it looks like it's working because there's five million people here, but in reality, it's only going to work in the you know the largest cities in the world and not the majority of the cities in the world. Um, and so Charlotte became this kind of you know if we can if we can really dig in and prove it in a market that might you know people might initially say you have things going against you, um, then we can do it anywhere. Um, And then over time as you started to hear things from investors and people outside of Charlotte, it became a chip on our shoulder. We want to plant the flag here and show that it can be done and um, raise capital here and do these things that people are telling us are going to be incredibly difficult to do.
2: So you build it, so in Charlotte, as with every other city, you build out a website for it. When when do you go more of the app route to, what does the development of that entail?
1: Yeah, so we, the first two and a half years, almost anti-app, our thought was again this is a set it and forget it kind of thing you know, no one needs another app it's incredibly expensive to to build we want to try to bootstrap and do this as you know, pure mvp as possible at the end of the day our service isn't an app-based service it is a we pick up clothes we clean them and we bring them back so we need to be really good at those three things how we communicate with you and get you to place that order needs to be you know, efficient it needs to be a good customer experience but it doesn't need to be a state-of-the-art app at least that was our thought um, and so everything was SMS-based. We would get your phone number, there's a lot of free, off-the-shelf software that we, you know, we could use to automate those text messages. You would probably, Y for a pickup, no for don't need one, and then you could M for Monday, T for Tuesday, etc. Um, and that worked incredibly well, and we eventually built an app because we had, we'd raised capital, we wanted to start offering other services, we wanted to start tracking data that we didn't have access to otherwise. Um, and so at that point we invested in, in an application But it took, you know, I think a lot of companies probably raise money, build the app right away. Ours was raise money, get really good at picking up, dropping off and you know, cleaning clothes. So, so that first
2: uh, iteration in 2016, did you raise capital or did you self-fund that first?
1: So we self-funded the first seven months, at first it was you know, five, 10 grand, a lot of sweat equity out of, you know, Dan and I, we had five guys living in a three bedroom apartment um, I, we still have pictures of you know, my bed, Dan's bed, another guy's bed at the foot of it. And we'd wake up at 5, 5.30, drive Uber for a couple hours. So we wouldn't eat do our savings too much. Um, but we also got our first customers that way. It'd be bankers uptown, consultants, lawyers. Hey, you know why are you driving Uber? Everyone always would ask. And hey, we're starting this laundry and Check it out. Here's a card, And boom, you start seeing you know, people signing up from those promo codes. Um, and then we got to a point where all right we bootstrapped to 20k in monthly revenue there's something here let's go hire you know, some drivers so that we can focus on growth and not actually living in it day to day and then we bootstrapped to about 50 grand in monthly revenue and realized hey there's something here let's let's go raise around and launch raleigh um, so we raised 400 grand from uh we had three term sheets from venture capital Sodom raleigh um, which was an awesome experience to get validation that hey we have something here how does that
2: feel, giving up some ownership at that point of the
1: company? I think at the time, you know, Dan and I have had pretty honest conversations with each other about, and I highly recommend—I mean, anyone getting started—is have that conversation. What do you want this to be versus just doing it and seeing what happens and having some idea? Um, and we both were pretty confident that we didn't want this to be a lifestyle business. We didn't want to be the laundry guys 30 years from now. Um, we want this to grow to you know, 20, 30 cities, and then if there's an opportunity to sell, sell. And if they're is and if there is an opportunity to sell, but there's also an opportunity to add five additional services and you know, continue to go and build upon what we've built, we wanted to have that optionality more than anything. It wasn't really a desire to sell in three years or um, you know, six years or what have you. We just knew we didn't want to do this for 30 years. So whatever that looked like you know, in between then. And so we knew we were gonna to have to raise venture to go as fast as we wanted to. Um, so honestly, two questions. How long before you don't have to
2: do laundry anymore? And number two, when do you get to start taking a, a decent paycheck?
1: Yeah, so the first 10 months, we were living off savings and driving Uber. So no paycheck for the first 10 months. We raised the round of capital, and even then we didn't really want to take much. Our thought was, this is meant to grow the business, not for Dan and I. Um, the investors at the time said, take something to cover you know rent and food so that you aren't driving Uber in the morning anymore and not sleeping really ever at all. Um, and so we started paying ourselves, I think, like 25 grand a year. And then, as we hit milestones, we'd we'd increase that. And we're at a point now, or I'm probably where I would have been at EY, or close to. um, And the business is doing a lot better. But we, you know, at one point, our board told us, "Pay yourself X," and Dan and I cut that in half, and said, "That's two different roles we could hire if we did that." And so it was always put everything back into the business. We, Dan and I, don't have families. Dan and I didn't have any major debts or responsibilities. Our thought was every dollar we have go back into the business to grow as much as we can. So as you've brought in that capital, do you guys ever feel
2: lopsided with ownership to where you're like, you know, this is we don't own we we have enough that we can still go out and sell more, or we're we're holding on to what we have right now because we can't own any less?
1: Yeah, so I think we're at this at a pretty like interesting point. I don't think we'd want to raise another round where, you know, you give up 20 plus percent, but I think we're at a place where we can still raise decent amounts of capital for, you know, five to 10% of the business. Um, And be impactful. And be impactful. Yeah, at at this point, if Dan and I have a a modest exit with this, it'll, you know, from a financial perspective, would have been better off than doing anything else, you know, if we stayed at EY or or what have you. Um, But if this was a, you know, again, something that we wanted to do for 30 plus years, it'd probably be lopsided and and not as motivating the home you own now or rent you have a washer and dryer in there i do do you use them not incredibly often and that's that's been one of the more interesting things when we first started we thought it'd be busy professionals um in uptown that might have like these european style or economy washers and dryers and it's been families in south park and myers park and Dilworth and your more affluent families that are both working have kids and they're exchanging dollars for time
2: you're collecting a lot of data analytics can i ask from what you know what triggers them to start using your type of service
1: it varies some of it's a life event newborn and you know it starts out as a gift from friends or you know husband or a wife to you know spouse to another spouse Um, And then imagine any of us in this room not doing laundry for a month or two and then having to go back to it. It's funny, we actually have some consultants sometimes that help us with, you know, app design or UI UX or um, what what have you type of service. And we'll give them, you know, like a month of of credit just as like a thank you for helping us. And then they continue to use it and they start paying for it at full price, not discounts or anything. It just becomes this once you're on, it becomes fairly sticky. Um, You don't want to go back to what you were doing before.
2: I got to share, I'm a frequent user of 2U Laundry, and the trigger was no life event or whatever, is uh, my patent that I was gonna get one day was the machine that folds the laundry, because I would have two weeks of clean laundry, all in a hamper, and when I found out, I almost washed my clothes anyway, and had you guys pick them up to fold it, but that was why, and I was like, I wonder how many people are paying them just to fold their laundry. (laughs) But anyway, that's insight from my side. Uh, as you've gone through doing this, uh, you know, we, we started off early about kind of a mistake you made early at a young age. Now the stakes are really high. What is it, what's the mistake you made into you laundry in this venture that you were like, oh, crap, this, this could kill
1: us? Mm-hmm. It's thankfully there haven't been any at least not yet um mistakes that have felt like this is it this is going to kill us but there's been a it's almost death by a thousand cuts you know if you make enough you have to make more right decisions than wrong you're gonna fail you're gonna make some bad decisions um but as long as you're making 60 you know 60 of the time making the right ones and so some of the big ones that jump out is you know, we hired a really expensive marketing person when we launched atlanta um you know, ex mckinsey consultant like you know, Harvard, MBA, all the on paper looks amazing. And it was just way too soon. We were really looking to hire you know, a LeBron that could you know, be a player and also coach the team. And we ended up hiring you know, the best coach of all time. And right. we, were not, we weren't big enough for that. This individual would have done incredibly well with a team of six, six seven people underneath them. Right. Um, but when we are as early as we were, and we hired them, it was just too too soon. And that cost us a lot of money. I mean, and we were
2: able to adapt, or?
1: Not really, and it was—it was just the expense for that role didn't justify the results that we were getting. And thankfully, with marketing, you can see very quickly if the, the person is or the investment's worth it or not. And in this case, after six months, it was very clear this this isn't gonna this isn't gonna make sense.
2: Uh, so you, you know you're, you're ingrained in Wake Forest, a proud alumni. Um, you learned a lot from Wake Forest, but what did you not learn in the classroom? <laughs> that they really should have covered?
1: Um, I think people are incredibly challenging. I'm looking back on it, and I remember the professor telling me this at the time, and it now makes so much sense, but it was uh, uh, like human dynamics and like organizations and people, I forget the title of the class, but it was basically about people dynamics in the workplace. My, a lot of Myers-Briggs right. and um, things and, we kind of roll our eyes at. Yes. Yeah, yeah. everyone was like, this is kind of like the free ball, you know, you know softball class and yeah. whatever. And I remember the professor saying, you guys are going to laugh and, and roll your eyes. And, yeah. But this is the class that you're, is going to be the most impactful. And looking back on it, I mean, people are everything, no matter if you're in a software business or AI business, people are building these technologies, people are building these companies, and people are unique and different and have different motivations and are excited about different things or get angry about different things and being able to adapt and, you know, me work with you differently than I might work with you and you and you. and um, I think that can be taught. I think, uh, and in a way school kind of teaches up these group projects, but I think being intentional about why, you know, this, certain things to look for, certain things to change, etc. Um, but that people interaction and people management.
2: Is that something you work on to this very day? All the time. H- how do you go about that?
1: Reading, you know, different books. Um, trying to talk to other mentors and and other founders that have have had these same problems and really leaning on a network of people that have experienced the same things. Um, One thing from like a personality perspective or or, personality trait, I've tried to become incredibly vulnerable and transparent. I've I've, I've learned that if something's bothering me, I'm gonna say it as long as it's in a productive, constructive way. Um, If I'm having an off day, I'm gonna let my team know. And I've just found that like over communicating in any relationship, whether it's a professional one or anyone you have at home, um, that vulnerability, I think people really barriers come down and you start to get to the truth of, of why a person's motivated by what they are, why they're upset about what they are, and you can move past it. There's usually an
2: incident or some sort of point in time that uh, you realize you need to be more vulnerable. Is there something that, that stands out that you said, I, I can't hold this in anymore? It it hurts more to hold it in than to
1: to be vulnerable. There wasn't a specific event, I, th- I think like work-wise. I think last year I'd already been comfortable being vulnerable with my team at this time when a lot of the um, you know, protests were going on and things like that. I mean people our team was talking about it and people had questions and I think that was a point where I was like I don't know if in a work setting if we want to you know start to blend these things but I feel like people want to and they want to talk about it. And I feel like as a leader I, can, I have two options. I either you know, try to stay silent and not say anything or I, I lean in and I, I share my thoughts and be vulnerable and respectful and so that was probably a moment that I, I, I didn't think was gonna happen, but like we got the team together, I started talking, and I just started sobbing, I, which I was not expecting myself to do. I didn't realize how I'd felt about those topics and those things, uh, but you could tell afterwards people respected me more than I, they, not that they didn't before, but you could tell there was this air of like, he's human and he's approachable and he's trying to wrestle these things that the, the rest of the world is trying to wrestle as well. And, uh, and I think gave me the benefit of the doubt more so than me might have traditionally well that's you putting a whole lot
2: of trust into them which hopefully reciprocally they do the same with you absolutely the uh as you 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 mentioned that where do you feel taking your company above and beyond the actual business model itself does that help shape how you want to have any impact in these areas of what's happening in the world
1: yeah absolutely so we're we're starting to franchise now um the the retail Portion of our business, so these physical brick and mortar laundromats that we've started to build. And they're traditionally in lower income areas, uh, in places where people can't necessarily afford their own washer and dryer. That's why they're going to these laundromats in the first place. Um, or they're in an apartment community that has just a room and, it's, and people take their clothes out before they're done and put them on the floor. And it's just, it's not a good experience. And so when we designed this location, we could have cut corners, built, you know, a comparable laundromat to the one. There's one right across the street where it's, it's semi it's mostly absentee, it's as the cheapest materials as you can possibly get, the cheapest equipment you can possibly get, um, or we can take an approach of, let's let's build a better version of this. Let's really build something in this community that, it's, it's a community center. You're spending hours, you know, your, your clothes are in the wash, in the dryer, you're waiting for them, you have to fold them. And you have kids that you're probably bringing with you because you can't afford a washer and dryer, you probably aren't affording a nanny or a babysitter as well. And so why don't we take the approach of building something that resonates with the communities that we're in, and even though it costs more, it'll probably th- take business from other places, it'll probably create loyal customers, it'll probably create a much better experience, and in the long run, this will pay dividends. Um, And it's done exactly that. The laundromat's done incredibly well, um, despite there being a laundromat right across the street. Um, And I'll never forget the first day we had opened, we had a grand opening, and a woman came up to me and was sobbing and just latched onto me. And I'll be honest, I was taken back. at first, I didn't know what was was going on. and I just asked, I mean, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. This is amazing. Just no one ever builds anything nice for us. And I think us meant, you know, this community of you know, lower income parts of the city, because it is, it is the grocery store, the gas station with bars on the windows. And I get why that those are there. And, um, but I think you're starting to see a lot more of that. I mean, I've seen Metro PCSs and Cricket wireless is all putting, re- redoing all their stores and investing in the image and, and the experience. Um, probably because are, everyone's starting to realize it, this is worth it in the long run, and do good while doing well in, in as many places as you can.
2: If in 30 years you don't want to be known as the laundry
1: guy, what do you want to be known as? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of awesome people throughout this, this journey, the investors that we've met and their stories, what products they've built or services they've built or you know what have you. Um, and realizing there's a lot of different ways to to make a living. There's a lot of different ways to you know spend your time and, and your passions. Um, and through those conversations, I think you observe and you see things that you maybe aspire to be. Um, and I've known from the beginning, it's not necessarily laundry or, or, or pot or donuts. Yeah. It's the act of solving a problem that, that that's exciting. Whether it's you know, and I'm not going to sit here and say like the colloquial like we're going to change the world because that's what entrepreneurs do. They, they definitely do, but it's not always that kind of Silicon Valley like at the end of the day, we're cleaning clothes, we're giving time back to people and and that that does probably impact a lot of lives and we've seen the stories come in, but I get excited about the problem and and working with the team, solving these problems quickly and in a clever way. Um, And so a long-winded way of answering that question is I want to get to the point where I can help others do that same thing and and invest in companies, um, help other people build companies, mentor young founders, entrepreneurs to to do the same thing, because it's just it's incredibly rewarding to help someone fulfill something that they're clearly very passionate about that i might not be for me it's laundry you might not care about laundry but hopefully out of a conversation you and i have that passion for just business and solving problems comes through and that's the commonality that we have um, and i've already noticed it happening with some younger founders that i, I mentor now and, I love, it's the best times so and the best time that I spend.
2: So, uh, Alex, thank you so much for sharing your story, for everything that you learned from high school and college, all the way to your endeavors to start 2U to Laundry, um, based on your 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 passion for entrepreneurship and where you're moving towards. Not just giving back to other entrepreneurs, but to the community as well. Uh, it's very well appreciated. So, thank you again for for being a part of this.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
0: for watching make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel at youtube.com slash or visit Casmerward.com to catch up on previous episodes and be on the lookout for our next episode featuring amber lewis amber is the visionary behind the good kitchen a sustainably sourced meal prep service that stemmed from her own wellness journey